chapter 21. Rabbi Jerry, as always, does a very good job giving background information and helping you to understand things and also presenting other views. Um, there, there are other views. People have different views about Revelation and whether these things should be taken literally or not. And they're entitled to be wrong. I'm sorry, they're entitled to have other views. Um, I really do take, unless there's an over, overarching reason to take something symbolically, I take it at face value. I mean, can you imagine if we read the newspaper in a fanciful sort of way that we didn't take anything at face value? Or imagine school textbooks and we didn't take any of it at face value. We, we allegorized everything. Can, I mean, imagine how messed up things would be and how much confusion. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to, um, you know, we'll go through the whole of chapter 21. We'll review those first eight verses. I'll give a few comments about them. I want to start, though, by reading to you from Second Peter. I won't tell you where, because I don't want you to go looking for this. Just be a first century believer, and you hear things, right? You're hearing, you're listening. All right, here we go. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise... We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So if, if there wasn't that last part, we people would think we were nuts for wanting to hurry up the day of the Lord when everything gets destroyed. Like, what, are you out of your mind? But there's a new heaven, new earth, new creation. It's going to be incredible. Um. Let me just share a few thoughts with you about this. One of the difficulties, the pressures that we face teaching Revelation, it's a difficult book, is to make proper distinctions in between what's meant to be taken literally and what is symbolic. And the difficulty, as I've talked to you about this, and Rabbi Jerry has as well, is that the Revelation contains both literal things and symbolic things. It's a letter but it's also an apocalypse. It's got elements of poetry, and yet it's prophetic. Um, it really crosses multiple genres of literature, so it makes it challenging uh, to teach. I'm not saying you should all, I'm not having a pity party like you should all feel sorry for me. It's just, let's face it, it is a difficult book. And it's important that we get it as right as possible. For example, if I treat as merely symbolic what was intended by God through John to be a physical, literal promise, then I'm contravening the whole purpose of this book, which is to encourage us in the face of the difficulties that are coming. Right? The trials, the tribulation, actual tribulation that will be coming prior to his return. 
if, if we relegate everything to symbolism, what is there to hold on to, right? I would be defeating the purpose of this letter. Um, so relegating a real promise to mere symbolism just devastates people's hope. On the other hand, if I teach as literal things that were meant to be understood symbolically, I could end up fostering unrealistic expectations, right? Something that was not meant as a literal thing, and I teach it, it's absolutely literal, and you think, okay, this is a promise of God, and I'm going to have this, and, and it isn't, and it doesn't materialize that way, then I've created false expectations. I've created a false hope. Um, so, you know, and, you know, frankly, that's what uh, the uh, prosperity teachers do. They take general kinds of ideas and make them into these ironclad, 100% across the board promises. And they take what sometimes what are symbols and just make it into a thing that they God is promising you this thing. So we have to be careful. Um, these last two chapters of Revelation are incredible, right? And if you've been reading, doing like a unit reading of it, you, it's just incredible. And as I've said before, the reason people get freaked out reading the Revelation is because they don't read it like a letter. They just skip right to chapter 13 to try to figure out who the Antichrist is or what the mark of the beast is. And oh my goodness, every, right? And who reads a letter that way? And this is a letter. So these last two chapters are filled with wondrous imagery. With God's help, I want to teach these things accurately. Uh, I want to foster greater encouragement in you that our faith should grow uh, and be more certain. So again, we're going to read, uh, we're going to go back through. It's not that Jerry lacked anything. I just want to kind of get the flow. Verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, there's two ways to take that. Some say that there won't be any ocean, won't be any oceans in the new heavens and new earth. I'm not sure that that's what this means. In the ancient way of rendering things, there's the heavens, the earth, the seas. So it could just mean that along with the earth, the seas are being done away with. It doesn't necessarily mean there won't be any oceans in the new heavens and new earth. There might not be. It could be that that phrase goes with the one that follows versus the phrase that precedes it. Um, so I, I don't want anybody to get become dogmatic about this. There's not going to be any oceans in the new heavens and the new earth. There might be, because this might just be meaning the heavens, the earth, the seas, as we know them, all pass away. But also understand, that in the ancient world, the Jewish people did not look at the ocean with any kind of effect, affection or any warm feelings. The ocean was a scary place. There's all kinds of creatures in there, and it's dangerous. A lot of people who go out that way never come back. The nations are out there, and they hate us. And you know, So it's not as though the ocean held much of a draw for the Jewish people. But some people love the sea, right? Love sailing, love being out on the open sea. So all this to say, 
I don't know whether there will be oceans in the new heavens and new earth, but there could be. There could be. All right. Um, I have a note here to read Luke 21.33, so let me read Luke 21.33 to you. Uh, all right. And it says, Heaven and earth will pass away. These are Yeshua's words. But my words will not pass away. So the whole creation, as we know it, is going to pass away. Yeshua's word remains, abides forever. That's, for, for him to say that, and, you know, he's saying this uh, to his disciples. Um, this is just before the last Passover that he celebrated. Who says such a thing? Could you imagine if I walked in here and said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never. What kind of megalomaniac would I be? Only God can say such a thing with a straight face and, and be right about that. Time as we know it had a beginning, and time likewise will have an end. Time as a property that we actually measure here is finite. It actually is part of the creation, time itself. You can't touch it, but it is part of the fabric of creation. What we are looking at here, what John saw, he's peering into infinity. So hard to, how do you make that work? But he's peering into infinity. What we're looking at, uh, John's vision includes a new earth, one which we'll see very much has physicality, identifiable elemental properties to it, at least some of which will correspond to this present earth. Um, there have historically been two primary approaches to the last three chapters of Revelation. We here at Shema tend to take a futurist view. Uh, it's a more literal view. That's my view. It's Rabbi Jerry's view. It's Rabbi Lauren's view. Uh, we're not saying that if you don't hold our view, you can't be here. No, it's just this is the predominant view that we have. That these are real things. They are yet to come. New heavens, new earth. Um, now, the somebody like me, a futurist, a literalist, would say that these descriptions are to be taken literally. It's a brand new planet Earth, right? Brand new universe, brand new everything. A new Jerusalem, but it still has the name Yerushalayim, city of peace. Uh, and it'll be a home to the righteous. Now, the non-literalist says that this vision is to be understood spiritually. And I mean, if you hold that view, that, that it's okay with me, but I mean, it's just, there's not much to hold on to if it's all, oh, it's just a, an idealistic idea. Really? And that's it. Um, they would say that the new creation is not an actual new heavens, new earth. It ignores what Peter wrote that I read at the beginning. And it says the new creation is simply God's work in the heart of men. Okay. 
He's doing a work in me and you, and I believe that there's a new heavens and a new earth. It doesn't have to be one or the other. We, and as I said, we may be misunderstanding if we assume that the new earth will not have any oceans. It may not, uh, but we, as I said, what we may simply be seeing here is the inclusion of the seas in the passing away of this present creation. Um, you may recall that in Genesis there were distinctions made between the firmament and the waters that were above it and the waters below and the land. And this may just be John's way of saying that the present heavens and earth and sea, everything is going to pass away and new ones will be created by God. Um, so the question, and I'm going to ask it more or less rhetorically, should we see the new heaven and new earth as literal? Yes, I really think we should. Um, all right, verse 2, let's go on. By the way, some teach that the new heavens and the new earth is really a reference to the present earth being restored to its Edenic state. The problem with that is you don't restore what's been destroyed, right? What's passed out of existence. And Peter makes pretty clear that everything's going away. All right, and by the way, it's the best rendering of the Greek here. Gone, new heavens, new earth. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Oh, weddings are just amazing things. They're just amazing things. Um, Alexandra and I are going to be going to uh, Levi and Jordana's big wedding uh, at, toward the end of the year. And we're going to be dressed to the nines because this is uh, an Indian-themed wedding in terms of the, the, the uh, fashions, the dress, some of the, some of the things about it. And um, I already got my outfit. And it's like, whoa. Um, a wedding is supposed to be like that. It's not every day. It's once in your life. And so brides get dressed up. My heart skipped a beat when I saw Alexandra walk, walk in the room the night. My heart skipped, of course, my heart skipped a beat first time I saw her too. But anyway, that's beside the point. But a wedding, a bride, think about it. And so think about Jerusalem just in a celestial way, just the beauty, the unimaginable beauty of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And John got to see it. We'll see it with him, and we will be citizens of it. But um, artists have tried to portray it, and some have done, really, I think, an incredible job. Um, um, there's this one guy in particular, I'll, I'll find his name later. He's an amazing artist, and he seems to be able to capture otherworldly ideas, but the fact is we can't begin to imagine how beautiful the new Jerusalem is going to be. All right. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So this is a distinct heavenly Jerusalem, right, that descends. It's like it's awaiting its, new, its place in the new earth. So if it's a new earth, why the same name? 
Why Jerusalem? And if it's named Jerusalem, in fact, it's called Yerushalayim Chadash, New Jerusalem. Um, that tells me that that's important to God. There's a whole lot of people, including followers of Jesus, who think, oh, it's just, it's, you know, the kingdom of heaven, it's not about all that. It's, it's the bigger picture, and Jerusalem isn't that important. And, oh, really? It's not that important, but God decides to name the celestial new city, New Jerusalem. And, of course, the etymology is beautiful, city of peace. All right, I have some other readings I'm going to go right on by. By the way, the New Jerusalem is mentioned the first time in Revelation 3.12, at least within Revelation. Uh, it's actually back in chapter 3, verse 12. Let me take a moment here because we may have, oh yeah, we've got some other people who have come in, Sue and Rosalind um, and my friend Curly, Marilyn, Jill and Larry. Um, great to have everybody watching, Bob and my friend Gary in Florida. All right, let's go on, verses 3 and 4. And verses 3 and 4 will help explain why it's a really good idea, not mandatory, but a really good idea for Christians to understand and rejoice in the Jewish holidays. Here we go. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So the heavens, the earth, the present heavens and earth, gone. And along with it, everything that broke our hearts, everything that caused us pain, every infirmity that we've ever had, right? God, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So the first things include the first heavens, the first earth, all the sorrow, all the misery, and death and unrighteousness that characterize it. The absence of mourning can be attributed to the absence of death. Nobody's dying anymore. The absence of weeping or pain can be attributed to the absence of things like infidelity, betrayal, treachery, thievery, ruthlessness. They will be absent because God himself will be present. Those things just cannot exist in his presence. So behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. You know, John didn't have to write it that way. That's how the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, chose to reveal it. And John isn't even writing his own words here. He's saying, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the sukkah, the tabernacle, the shelter of God is among men. Sukkot, the holiday of tabernacles, is meant to look ahead to this time. It's going to be amazing. 
And uh, in, at Sukkot, um, in ancient Israel, when the temple still stood, there were a total of 70 sacrifices offered during the week of Sukkot, 70. Obviously, it's important it's a multiple of seven, but 70 was considered to be, at that time in history, the, the full number of the nations of the world. So what's the implication that there's 70 sacrifices over seven days, right? And there's an eighth day, which implies a new beginning, because seven means completion. It's like this picture of God welcoming people from all the nations to come under his shelter. It's absolutely looking ahead to eternity. So again, I ask, are we to take this literally? Will God literally live among us? Will God really touch human beings and comfort them? It's difficult to imagine that a God, first of all, who's infinite, but also infinitely holy and powerful, who could not even be seen by mortals, or we would be destroyed. And yet he's going to live right in the midst of his people. But we will be changed. We will, this mortal must put on immortality, right? All right. Um, I don't think this is in any way describing the millennium. This is the eternal state. And it really is important. I realize I've said this a number of times. It is important that we make a distinction between the 1,000-year reign of Yeshua the Messiah on earth, this present earth, after which will be a short-lived rebellion, which will be destroyed, and then the whole of this present heavens and earth pass away, and God creates new heavens and a new earth. All right. Um, by the way, John was by, not, by no means the first one ever to prophesy these things. Turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 65. By the way, that's a left turn in case anybody's wondering. Isaiah 65. Written approximately seven centuries before Yeshua. And again, this just shows the Remarkable consistency across the thousands of years that the word of God was written. Isaiah chapter 65, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. I mean, it's just, it's amazing, right? The things that are to come. All right. Verses 5 through 8, and he who sits on the throne 
said, this is God speaking, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And we've just been reading about the woman at the well in Samaria. And Yeshua says, if you knew who you were talking to, I would give you living water. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Quite a warning there. I mean, on the one hand, quite an amazing thing. I will give to the one who thirsts from the water of life without cost. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the immoral, liars, murderers, idolaters, all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire. And it's God the Father speaking these words. So this is an affirmation of the deity of Yeshua, who in chapter 22, as we're going to see in the next week or so, calls himself by the same name, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now he says here, write, for these words are faithful and true. This is in contrast to Daniel, who was told, seal this up. This is not for the present time, Daniel was told. It's for the end. John is being told, write these things down, right? This is to be published. And this is why the name of the book is Tisapocalypsis, the unveiling. We call it revelation to reveal. Pull the, pull the uh, sheet off and there's this beautiful new thing, right? The unveiling. The water of life. It's actually a, a cute little rhyme in Hebrew. The water of life in Hebrew is Mayim Chaim. Mayim Chaim, the water of life. Um, You read about this in Jeremiah 2. But think, think Genesis, the beginning, the idyllic nature of things. Think Revelation, the end, and a new creation, and the idyllic. And note specifically again who is excluded from this. The cowardly. Does that mean anybody who's ever afraid? No. By cowardly, he means those who are unwilling to believe in Yeshua because they're afraid of what everybody thinks. People afraid to stand on principle. The unbelieving. The unbelieving in what? In Yeshua, the Messiah, and for the above reason. Abominable, 
Now, think about what in Scripture God describes as toeva, abomination. Whatever those things are, and you know them, you guys know the word, those people are excluded. Murderers. And you're thinking, yeah, I mean, I get that. God would never allow murderers, but isn't that a whole lot more serious than being cowardly? In terms of offenses, person to person, yeah, I suppose, but um, this is talking about people who are unfit for God's kingdom. And people who are just so afraid of what everybody thinks that they're not willing to stand up for Yeshua, they're just not fit for his kingdom. Just not fit. Immoral persons, implied here, is sexual immorality, ongoing, unrepentant sexual immorality. Sorcerers. Well, maybe some of you have friends who are into witchcraft. Um, it isn't innocent. Occultism is dangerous. It's insidious. It is one way that uh, people who don't want to have to deal with God and with following you know, commands and having commandments to live by want to feel spiritual without any like moral requirements. So new age and occultism is very attractive, but it's insidious. It's a Satan gets a foothold in there. Um, idolaters. Um, now, there aren't a whole lot of people that I'm aware of today, especially in Western nations, that are actually bowing down to idols and praying to them. And I know somebody out there is going to want me to talk about Roman Catholicism. Not doing that. Um, though it is wrong to pray to saints. We, scripture is clear. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. And it's not Mary and it's not any of the saints. It's Messiah Yeshua. Um, and I'm not sure that I would call that idol worship anyway. But there are different forms of idolatry. Materialism is a form of idolatry. Whatever it is, we are all susceptible to idols. And then all liars, and notice the emphasis on this one, and all liars. Well, what does this tell us about God's view about lying? He hates it. And we should hate it. When do people lie? People usually lie to stay out of trouble <laughs> or to make trouble or to gain an advantage over other people, make money off of them or put them in a bad position, right? To gain, to gain position over somebody else. So people lie for a couple of different reasons. God hates that. He hates when we say one thing and we mean another. He hates a forked tongue, as it were, right? He hates duplicity. How, whatever word you want to call it, he hates that. 
we should hate it. The only justifiable lying I have ever read about or understood in scripture is when the, the Jewish midwives in Egypt lied to Pharaoh to save the lives of these Israeli baby boys. And they weren't even lying to save their lives. They were lying to save somebody else's life. Rahab lied about the two Israeli spies that had come. Oh, they already left. If you hurry, you'll catch up to them. They're on a roof, hidden. She not only saved the lives of those two spies, but by extension, who knows how many countless more Israelis if Jericho had brought its army up. So she wasn't lying to save her skin. She was lying to save other people's lives. So anyway, these are the people who are excluded, but it's more than just being excluded. Oh, and it, it would be easy to say, you know, to, to your unbelieving friend, it would be so sad if you missed out on all the wonders and the glory and the joy that's to come. And you would be speaking the truth, but not the whole truth. Because the truth is, everybody else goes to the lake of fire, which is the second death, hell. So carrot and stick, but the point is, you need both parts of this if we're really going to be honest with our, our neighbor. All right, now let's go on. Oh, I have a note here. Uh, those of you taking notes, Isaiah 66, 18 through 24, I'll read it to you. It says this, For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and languages and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my name nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations like a grain offering, to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. That's how the book of Isaiah ends. Wow. The wicked, the transgressors, will perish. Verses 9 through 21. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me. It's interesting that this angel who basically held the bowls pouring out God's wrath and all the 
horrible, horrible things that are going to come on the earth. This is the same angel. It says, came and spoke with me saying, come here. I shall show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her brilliance, was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, written on the gates, not on the angels. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We'll pause there for just a moment. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. And Judas isn't one of them, by the way. Uh, there were actually, there, was a, there were two Yehudas. Uh, there's Judas Iscariot. He, he's not going to be, his name is not going to be on one of those gates. But let me ask, who knows the name of the apostle that replaced him? Yes, Matthias. So Matisyahu, <laughs> Matthias, his name. All right. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. Interesting, because the millennial Jerusalem is without walls, but the new Jerusalem will have incredible walls. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width, and he measured the city with the rod. Fifth 1,500 miles. How big did this angel have to be holding a rod that could measure 1,500 miles? Or was the angel like one of the, you know, here, take the other end. No. Wow. 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 miles. Now, if it was resting on the earth, it would be hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of miles into space. But this is a whole new creation that we're talking about. So it's not resting on this earth. This is his vision. He's seeing it come to earth, right? Because this is how we, re we reckon with things. We are earthlings. And the new Jerusalem is coming. We're going to live there. So in the vision, he sees it coming down, but it would extend well into space if it were resting on it. And it would basically go from the eastern seaboard to roughly Denver, Colorado. From Canada to Mexico. I mean, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. It's huge. And he measured its wall. 72 yards. Wow. Um, 
I would say, what would you say? From me to the door is about 25 yards. From, from here to the doors right here, about 25 yards. Triple it. That's how big the walls are. Now, are they solid? I think, no, I think there's going to be all kinds of houses and stores and all kinds of things in the walls. Uh, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also, he says, angelic measurements. So this thing is going to be huge. Let's go on. And the material of the wall, here we go, was jasper. Jasper is such a cool stone. It's got so many variations in the colors of it. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, onyx or sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl, which is that? What would beryl be? Is that a green stone? I don't, I'm not sure. Um, the ninth, topaz. Love that color. The tenth, chrysoprase. I don't know what that is. The eleventh, jacinth. I don't know what that is. The twelfth, amethyst. I, we know that one, right? Purple. It's going to be gorgeous. Um, by the way, if you can find it, it's not so easy to find. But there's an artist named Ted Larson, and he does biblical digital art. And he has some incredible works that he's done, you know, conceptualizing the new Jerusalem. So, and it's described as the bride, the wife of the lamb. Interesting, because when you think about it, you've got God relates to us, right? We are the bride of Messiah. And in a way, also, the new Jerusalem is adorned like a bride. And he says, let me show you the bride, right? So we are the bride. The new city is the bride. How can both things be true? Well, why not? We are wedded to Messiah. The new city, the new Jerusalem, is like a bride to God, or right? Beautiful beyond description. Um, look at, uh, turn back to chapter 19 for just a moment. And let's see this, verses 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Well, Usually the person invited to the wedding isn't the bride. So clearly this goes beyond our human 
conceptions and conventions about things. We don't think of a city as being a bride. We think of a woman as being a bride. But here we are, men, women, children, all servants of God through Yeshua the Messiah. We are his bride, right? We are the bride. And in some sense, the city itself, the New Jerusalem, is the bride. Um, so yes, all of these things can be possible simultaneously in, in eternity in heaven. All right, I have some additional notes. If you're taking notes, just jot these things down. Uh, you'll want to look at Isaiah 62, 1 through 5. Um, and Matthew 9, 15. Interesting, the dimensions and the materials that comprise the New Jerusalem. And he's noted, especially it says, by human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Metric? <laughs> 72 yards or how many meters? I don't know. Uh, which humans are we talking about? No, it was, it, was, uh, it was spans and it was cubits and such. Um, but the English, it's 12,000 stadia. A stadion was 600 feet. So 12,000 stadia, if we're going to be precise, is 1,363 miles. Um, the English text says 1,500 miles. Okay, so maybe it's 1,363. Um, but it's apparently in the shape of a cube. The width, the length, and the height are all equal. David Reagan says the incredible size means that the city would stretch from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and from the Atlantic coast of America to Colorado. It would also extend 1,500 miles into and beyond the atmosphere. Now, some people doubt that this is supposed to be taken literally because 1,500 miles is beyond the atmosphere. It's in space. How do you live or breathe in space? Well, the answer is we're not in these mortal bodies, right? We will have put on immortality. We're not going to be limited in movement or limited in what we do. We will be, we're not going to be God, of course, but we will be supernatural beings. It would be ridiculous for all these details to be describing what is only meant to be understood symbolically. That's my opinion on this. Heaven is not going to be a place where we are disembodied spirits floating around doing nothing but playing harps. The new heavens and the new earth contain a city, and it has real dimensions, and there will be real activity. Hoping there's a really nice Jewish deli close to where I'll be living. But its glory is beyond our comprehension. So people sometimes forget that the new heavens, the new earth are real places and we will dwell there. And it should not have been spiritualized away, I think, to some like nebulous promise of just being in a happy state. 
I get that in the morning with a cup of coffee. This is going to be this is going to be beyond anything we could imagine. All right, verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in it. Wait, whoa, what? No temple? How can that be? There will be a temple in the millennial kingdom, but there won't be a temple in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by the way, this is the title of my study tonight. The nation shall walk by its light. The nations will walk in the light of the Messiah. He himself will illumine the city. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Again, stop, hold it. A lot of people have this idea that in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, there's no nations. It's all one big homogenous undistinguished, plain, just so we're all the same. No, there are nations and distinctions, not in terms of value. We are all the sons and daughters of God who are going to be there, right? But think about the color and the vibrancy, the music, right? Everything that's good about the nations will be there. Everything that's good about the nations without any of the baggage, without any of the, uh, you know, looking down on other nations. There just won't be any of that, but there'll be all the best, all the best. The nations shall walk by its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. God will be the king, but there will be Rulers also of nations serving God. And they'll bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there. Yes! That's almost my favorite thing about the circumstances of the New Jerusalem. No nighttime. Oh, I, I'm I'm getting ha- I'm getting happy because the days are gradually getting longer. It's no longer dark at five in the afternoon. You know, there's not going to be night there. We won't need the night. We won't be tired. We won't need to sleep. It's going to be amazing. And its gates shall never be closed and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying, there it is again, lying, shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's going to be amazing. All the best, right? All the best and nothing else. All the best. There will be there will be a temple in the millennial kingdom of Yeshua. There will be no temple in the New Jerusalem. 
Because new heavens and a new earth means a whole new beginning. And no sin. Therefore, no need for sacrifice. Therefore, no need for a temple with an altar or a priesthood. We won't even need to have the remembrance of them. In the millennial kingdom, there will be a temple, there will be sacrifices, because there will still be a remembrance of sin. Not in, the, not in eternity, not in the new Jerusalem. No temple. So at the risk of redundancy, I think it's extremely significant that the city of God will be called the New Jerusalem. That name carries over into the new creation. And I think that should give us a perspective, a new perspective, a greater weight, for example, to Psalm 122, Psalm 137, which speak about the joy over Jerusalem and the yearning for Jerusalem. The gates never close. Why would they need to? There's n gates are closed for the sake of protection. There's no need of any protection. Who's going to attack? This is not just a better city in an otherwise fallen world. This is an entirely new creation. No sin in the new heavens and the new earth. But as I said, notice that there will be unique and separate nations. The new earth is not made up of homogenous cookie cutter human beings. It will boast every bit of the variety of humanity that we presently enjoy without any of the bad stuff. I personally believe it will also include all kinds of species of animals, yet without the elements of enmity or fear that presently exist and dominate this present earth. Imagine a world where lions walk with people instead of eating them. And imagine a world in which people play with elephants instead of hunting them for their ivory tusks. Imagine a world in which mosquitoes and bees fly, but there's no bites, no itching, no stinging. Imagine a new creation where I am not afraid of spiders. Let me close with this. Rabbi Paul quotes from Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 9, he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of the things that God has prepared for those who love him. It gets even better when we get into chapter 22. Because what we've been seeing in chapter 21 is we're looking at Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, more or less from the outside, looking in. When Jerry picks up next week, Lord willing, we're now inside the city. And we see some of the description of what is inside the city. We're, tonight we've been looking at how beautiful it is, right? Um, and it's going to be amazing. But next week we, we take a walk into the city and see some of what's going on inside it. So, it's just, so obviously you want to be here next week. Um, and I have to believe it was worth all of the, hard things that we read 
in earlier chapters of Revelation for the joy that awaits us. And that's the bigger picture of the Revelation, getting us prepared to have to suffer and to have to endure because of the unimaginable glory that's just on the other side. We die in a moment. Our eternity begins and goes on forever. And for those of us who love Messiah Yeshua, it's going to be an amazing experience. Let's pray. Father God, I can't possibly do justice to these descriptions and what is to come. And you've purposely left a lot of these things shrouded in mystery. And we have good imaginations, Lord God, but <laughs> even we cannot even we cannot begin to imagine the glories that await. Yet even the things that we can imagine here through these descriptions John gave us are enough to make us want with everything that we have to be there. Lord God, may this knowledge cause us to be that much more zealous to reach our friends and our neighbors and our family members who don't yet know you because of the glories that await. And we remember, Lord God, that the alternative, for there is not a third way, is the lake of fire. So help us to encourage and to warn. But help us, Lord God, to get this word out there. This world needs it so badly. Thank you for our gathering tonight. Thank you for everybody who's here, for everybody who's watching. Pray even now, Lord, that uh, in between now and next week, you would be at work in us, be at work through us. Even now, I pray that you'd help Rabbi Jerry as he prepares to teach chapter 22. We thank you for all your goodness. We pray all these things in Yeshua's name. And I ask, Lord, that you give everybody safe travels home. Amen.